Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that will kill your lover if you step out of line. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector, and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Beth, and I'm on book talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the substack Restorative Romance. The Silver Devil was published by Jackie Bianchi under the pen name of Teresa Dennis in 1978. On Reformed Rakes, we've talked before about bodice rippers with a cult reputation, and the Silver Devil, set in the, quote, opulence and intrigue of Renaissance Italy, is perhaps the moodiest, bloodiest, most devilish bodice ripper of them all. Jackie Bianchi was a major Mills and Boone editor, discovering category romance superstars like husband and wife duo Wendy and Frank Brennan, who sold millions of books under the pen name Emma Darcy. Interestingly, category romance is famous for sticking within certain bounds to complement the other books in the series. This is the appeal, and why many unknown authors get their start writing category. By day, Bianchi edited these books, and by night she wrote masterpieces that pushed the boundaries of what gothic romance can be. The modern gothic, the woman fleeing a mansion books popularized in the 1960s and 70s reigned supreme, but Dennis took these books out of Victorian England, increased the threat level, and made her readers grapple with moral quandaries. Dennis only published two books, 1978's The Silver Devil and 1980's The Flesh and the Devil, before her death in the late 1980s. While most out-of-print books fade into obscurity, both Dennis's books remain cult classics to this day. As a reminder, bodice rippers contain rape and sometimes graphic violence. The Silver Devil is far from an exception, so please skip this episode if you need to. We will see you next time. Okay, so I feel like I've been talking about The Silver Devil for probably as long as I've known y'all. Uh, so I guess now we can talk about like first thoughts. Um, and then, of course, we could compare it to Stormfire, which is another very violent bodice ripper that we read for this podcast. I'm glad I read Stormfire before this one, but maybe I feel the same way if I read The Silver Devil first, <laughs> where I felt like I'm kind of prepared for this, like, I don't know, just the kind of style that Dennis employs. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about it in terms of Stormfire, because I you know, I think maybe two people would list like those two and maybe The Flame and the Flower, though that's in print, so it's a little bit more accessible mm-hmm. as like maybe like what you think of when you think of a bodice ripper just because of the sort of notoriety of the Silver Devil and Stormfire, though maybe I'm realizing the notoriety of the Silver Devil may be coming from Chell's talking about it so much. <laughs> um, I feel like that's where people maybe know it from. Um, but I think I'm really glad that we read Gaywick before this mm-hmm. one because I think seeing – I think it reminded me more of Gaywick, I think the mm-hmm. Gothic and the Mistress of Melon, um, and seeing like what a bodice ripper does when it's more like a Gothic because I would not – like Stormfire is not a Gothic. And it has, like, the violence and there's, like, s- some some overlap, like, the, the importance of location. And, like, the, the, obviously there's some, like, there's a Venn diagram of gothic tropes and Stormfire. But I think you could do that with most romance novels. Um, but I think seeing these sort of two extremes of, like, the body tripper genre being written so differently, having different interests within their characters, um, sort of puts into focus, like, how, how like, this, this subgenre that people kind of collapse and sort of talk about in mm-hmm. like broad strokes can have a lot of variety amongst it even with these two sort of big examples that are often characterized as like the extreme of the genre they're extreme in different ways mm-hmm. yeah I think like I do kind of feel like this 
book is more in conversation with Gaywick than it is Stormfire. Like, I think particularly, like, Robbie and Felicia. Like, what decisions would those two make together? Mm -hmm. That would be fun to know. (laughs) They would get up to nothing good. (laughs) Opening doors they shouldn't. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, revealing information that will become important later. Before we continue our discussion of the Silver Devil, I'm going to give you a plot summary. I can't promise it'll be quick, but it'll be thorough. (laughs) The book begins with a brief prologue as an unnamed narrator lies on a bed. She's pregnant, confined to a room that is stiflingly hot, and surrounded by whispering voices she longs to block from her mind. A sense of foreboding looms. 1605 on the east coast of Italy, just north of the Kingdom of Naples. Felicia lives with her half-brother Antonio and his wife Celia. They both strongly loathe and mistreat Felicia, who they see as worthless for being born a bastard. Her mother never revealed who fathered her, and when Felicia's mother died, her lot in life took a turn for the worse. Without a single protector or friend in life, Felicia is forced to do unpaid grunt work at her brother's inn, with Celia constantly belittling and berating her. They force her away from the public eye, warning her of the predatory men of the outside world, implying that she would find a way into sex work soon enough. Celia tells her she would have paid nuns to take her if she could have spared the money. Because she's so isolated, Felicia begins to notice the changes in Fidena gradually. It seemed to become what she called a city in terror, crowded by soldiers and condottieri. War was coming. One night, Felicia overhears Beniamino, a captain in the Duke's army, describe the situation. Duke Carlo, the Duke of Cabria, who rules Fidena, married a Spanish woman named Madame Gratiana, whose unfaithfulness spurred him to rebuke her in public. Enraged, Gratiana sent her kinsmen to Naples to start a war. The Duke enlisted his two sons to drive out the invaders. Sandro, his eldest, who is illegitimate but an experienced soldier, and Domenico, the heir. Beniamino criticizes Domenico harshly, saying that he is a coward who only joined in on the conflict to be around handsome soldiers. A week later, a courier delivers the news of Duke Carlo's victory. The enemy soldiers were driven back to Naples. Sandro, the Duke's dark-haired child, revered as the flower of Fidena, initially led his troops to slaughter, only to be rescued by his younger brother, Domenico, the Silver Devil. When the troops parade through the city in triumph, Felicia is left alone at the inn. She's able to pry open an old window upstairs to watch the procession in fascination, noting that most of them had dyed their hair white. Quote, Here and there, someone's natural coloring escaped the fashionable leprosy, a woman's high-piled hair gleaming like a helmet of bronze, a man's soot-black curls. But all the rest looked like living corpses bedecked for a macabre dance of death, their lizard eyes blinking gummily in the sunshine. Felicia is surprised to discover that Duke Carlo is so old, with gold powder dusting his white hair to give him the illusion of youth. She notes that the dark-haired Sandro is short and handsome. When she peers out the window to get a closer look at a third rider, her life changes forever. Quote, He sat on his horse unmoving, a somber black figure in startling contrast to the vivid colors about him, the sun dazzling on his white gold hair. Unlike the duke and his bastard, there was no laughter in his face, and his eyes were not searching the house fronts for diversion. Instead, he was staring intently straight up at my window. Felicia notes that he was looking at her as a cat in front of a mouse hole. Troubled and afraid, she closes the window. Late that night, she hears voices outside the inn. Feeling sure the writers have come for her, she tries to hide, only to encounter the writer from earlier in the tap room. 
He calls her Little Crow and asks her if Antonio is her husband or lover. When she tells him that Antonio is her kinsman, the rider moved to touch her, backing her into a corner. Antonio comes charging in and the rider tells him that he has come to purchase a rare wine. A flustered Antonio, who has no such wares, is confused, but he tells Felicia to leave. Later, Antonio brings a wine to Felicia, telling her that the rider that visited was noble. He bids her to drink the cordial for it'll help her sleep. And Felicia doesn't want to, but kindness from Antonio is so rare that she does it anyway. An indeterminate amount of time later, she wakes up in a dungeon. Disoriented, she hears voices speaking of her, how the Duke wants her, and how she almost died in his attempt to take her from the inn. When she wakes in full, a kindly Jesuit priest named Father Vincenzo tells her that she drank something that gave her a fever. A small man with unnaturally bleached hair named Piero is sent to fetch Felicia for the Duke. Knowing she's to be his unwilling mistress, Felicia asks why he would bother to take her by force. Because he soon tires of those who are too willing. There was an oddly brittle note in Piero's voice. He is surfeited with brood mares and must mount the unicorn. Piero taunts Felicia, warning her that the Duke will tire of her shortly, as he does with all women. Once this inevitably occurs, she will be left to Piero's mercy. Felicia is dressed in finery by a servant named Madonna Nicolusa. A beautiful younger woman named Madalena watches Felicia's preparation and spitefully remarks that she's common and will not interest the Duke. When Felicia is brought to the feast, she's surprised to note that the Duke is not there. Instead, the silver-haired rider who accosted her at the inn is seated at the place of honor. The rider is none other than Domenico, whose father, Duke Carlo, died the night Felicia was kidnapped, making Domenico the new Duke of Cabria. During the feast, Sandro turns to his brother Domenico and asks him for a gift of his former mistress, Madalena. Felicia watches in horror as Piero's warning comes to life in front of her. Domenico summons Madalena and unceremoniously says she will serve his brother now, and an enraged Madalena is dragged from the feast by Sandro. That night, Domenico rapes Felicia and asks her to come to him gently instead of resisting. Is it so hard to love me, Felicia? He asks. This is not love, she responds. He tells her that she will soften to him, and Felicia worries that affection for her captor will only make her fate more difficult to bear. The next day, Domenico warns Felicia of his jealousy. If she can't love him, he tells her to, quote, take heed you love no one else then, or the man you choose shall pay for it. His hand if he touches you, his eyes if he looks too long, or if his speech charms you, I shall take his tongue. There are other forfeits. He demonstrates this early on. When a young courtier helps Felicia into her saddle when she goes riding the next day, Domenico whips the man on the cheek. Felicia learns from Domenico's secretary, Ippolito, that Gratiana, the Spanish third wife of the deceased Duke Carlo, was removed from court by Domenico because he suspected her of killing the former Duke. The famously unfaithful Gratiana was also Sandro's lover, which is why Domenico made a gift of Madalena to make up for his brother's lost mistress. The Archbishop Francesco della Raffaele, who is Domenico's great uncle, is an important figure in the state of Cabria. Fifty years prior, the Pope found himself in great debt to Duke Ricardo, who demanded that his brother, a bishop at the time, be elected to take the place of the former legate. The Pope refused, and Ricardo rebelled and took power by force, declaring himself and his brother, the current Archbishop, as joint rulers. The Pope's successor was willing to accept this new reality in exchange for a cancellation of his debt, 
But it's widely believed that when the archbishop dies, the pope will excommunicate the entire state of Cabria. Father Vincenzo tells Felicia that the archbishop fears her power over the famously fickle Domenico, as she's been his mistress for an unheard of four days. Felicia rejects this notion. She believes Domenico sees her as a plaything and that he will grow bored of her. She's distraught to further realize that she has come to love Domenico and decides never to reveal her feelings. Piero continues to taunt Felicia, cornering her in her bedchamber and telling her that the Duke is rumored to take a wife soon. Where is your power now? He asks her. She responds with, I had none to lose. As Piero leaves, he drops a note. Felicia intends to return to him, but Sandro intercepts her, telling her that she's discovered a cipher and that Piero could potentially be a spy. This is confirmed later. A horrified Piero wanders around the castle waiting for his comeuppance. Felicia calls him a walking wraith. One day, Maddalena, Domenico's former mistress, tells Felicia that Domenico, in searching for the truth of Felicia's parentage, discovered that Duke Carlo was her father, making her and Domenico half-siblings. Disgusted, Felicia begins to withdraw from Domenico, telling him that she can't lie with him because she got her period. Domenico grows suspicious, and he assumes that Felicia has taken a lover. He brings her down to a torture chamber to reveal Bernardo, the courtier who was kind to Felicia, stretched to the fullest on a rack. Domenico pushes Felicia to reveal her perfidy, and Felicia tells him what Madalena revealed to her about her parentage. Domenico then summons Madalena, who confesses that she lied out of jealousy to create a wedge between them. Domenico banishes Madalena from court and tells her she will have to nurse men with leprosy, something that Felicia describes as a living death. Domenico shares his suspicions with Felicia that this is the work of the archbishop, who is sowing discord in order to get rid of Felicia. The next day, Domenico and the rest of his court, including Felicia, leave for Diurno for Domenico's coronation as the next Duke of Cabria. Once there, Domenico shows Felicia a set of portraits of potential wives, not caring how much this distresses her. The archbishop approaches Felicia when she's alone, telling her that he'll help her escape to a nunnery, but that she has to do it quickly. Felicia, who cannot return to her former home at the inn because she will be seen as a ruined woman, has nowhere else to go once Domenico takes a wife and loses interest in her. She thinks she will be better off at a nunnery than to be passed off to another nobleman, watching Domenico and his new wife at a distance. She agrees to leave, and the archbishop enlists a group of men to pay off her guards and escort her away. She doesn't make it far before she's intercepted by a furious Domenico, who has been informed of the plot by none other than Piero. In a nightmarish scene, Domenico lines up the seven people involved, to varying degrees, in facilitating Felicia's escape, and sentences them all to hang. Felicia is weeping and devastated, hoping that Domenico will kill her too so that she no longer has to live with the memory of this night. Instead, Domenico orders Felicia to attend his coronation the next day, pretending to be the woman he has chosen as his future wife, the illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Savoy. Felicia is baffled by this and is embarrassed by the ruse, but nobody is the wiser that she is not of noble birth. Now that Domenico is crowned, they will all return to Fidena, but not before Domenico takes care of one final matter, Piero. Domenico organizes a hunting trip with Sandro, Piero, Felicia, and a handful of other men. Piero, who was previously cautious around the castle after losing his cipher, has been lulled into a sense of safety. 
Domenico seeks out Piero, seemingly confirming their connection is strong. Felicia is troubled by this, thinking, I could hardly bear to see how flattery had swelled the man. All his caution had been swallowed up in conceit, and his voice, high and overexcited, was the only one uplifted in the whole party. I felt sick. Domenico's cruelty did not stop at keeping Piero ignorant of his doom. First, he was letting him make a fool of himself. Finally, a group of the hunting party leave, circling Piero. Domenico calls out to him softly, You lost this riding the other day. Take it. Piero's realization that he's not just been caught, but trapped, is devastating. At first, he denies his treachery. Then he swells with rage, accusing Domenico of dangling him on a string, turning away from his love and devotion. I have never known whether I loved you more than I hated you, he says almost conversationally. God and the devil will have to winnow it out between them, but I fancy the devil will win. God may dislike my making you his rival and tip the scale so that I shall burn, and yet you never loved me, nor anyone. Domenico gives the order for Piero to be killed, then the three wolf-like hunting dogs circle him, then attack. Felicia watches in horror as Piero, Domenico's friend and confidant of 13 years, is eaten alive. Back in Fidena, Domenico learns that his stepmother, Gratiana, enraged at being banished from court, is preparing to have Spanish forces invade Cabria. With little time to prepare, the city is under siege. Domenico orders Felicia to hide, but she decides that she would rather keep an eye on Domenico instead, paying off a servant boy for a pair of clothes so she can dress as a man and keep in Domenico's proximity. The siege turns dire. They are outmatched and the Spanish have infiltrated the city, beginning to slaughter the people inside. Domenico's courtiers beg him to escape and regroup, but he staunchly refuses. He only agrees when Ippolito, his secretary, promises to carry out an unnamed task. Domenico and some of his men escape down the castle walls on a rope, and it's then that Ippolito finds Felicia and recognizes her disguise. He convinces her to follow Domenico and his men. Felicia makes it to safety, but Ippolito is hit by an arrow and killed. When Felicia delivers the news to Domenico, he is distraught over Ippolito's death, giving Felicia little notice. Felicia is humiliated that Domenico should care so little for her, and decides that since she does not have the Duke's protection or favor, she must continue with her ruse as a young man. With the help of another servant, Santi, who recognizes her disguise, she cuts her long hair, knowing that she can't wear her cap throughout the night. Felicia watches from afar as Domenico continues to act erratically, which she chalks up to his grief over Ippolito. They pass each other a few times, but he doesn't speak to her and barely looks her way. As they make their way to an unknown destination, Domenico's party comes across Sandro, who reveals that he's working with Gratiana. With Domenico's death, Gratiana, Sandro's former mistress, has promised to rule with Sandro. Domenico challenges Sandro to a fight, which Sandro, an experienced soldier, believes he will easily win. It's a long and vicious battle, but Domenico eventually kills Sandro, ordering his men to leave his body unburied on the road, as flies overtake him. One night, the Duke catches Felicia in the dark, and as he accosts her, it's revealed that he is just now recognizing her. He thought she died in the castle, and it was her assumed death, not Ippolito's, that caused him to grieve. Domenico orders Felicia, still disguised as a boy, to his side, and the rest of the party assume that Domenico has taken a new lover. Their destination is to the Duke of Firenze, also known as Emerigi, a man who is rumored to be mad but has created a large army that Domenico hopes to utilize. 
Amerigi is one of Domenico's allies, and interestingly enough, the person Piero was trying to spy for. Domenico saw this as stupidity on Piero's part, but it soon revealed that Amerigi is no ally. Before he was married to Gratiana, Domenico's father, Duke Carlo, had two other wives. The first was Domenico's mother, and the second, Isabella, was said to have been murdered. Isabella was Amerigi's sister, and her death was not murder, but suicide. Amerigi's love for his sister was not brotherly, but incestuous, and he blames Domenico for her death. Instead of giving him use of his army without strings attached, Amerigi challenges Domenico to a game of chess. If Domenico wins, he gets the soldiers to win back Fidena. If he loses, Amerigi gets to keep Felicia. Domenico agrees to play, and he loses the game of chess. Felicia thinks, once again, that Domenico cares so little for her since he bartered her so easily. But the truth is, he never intended to keep his word. When Amerigi moves to claim Felicia, Domenico kills his guards and moves in to fight the other duke. Amerigi then seems to lose touch with reality, confusing Felicia for his long-dead sister. When a captain arrives to question what happened, Domenico lies and tells him that he and Amerigi were sparring, and the dead guards are a result of their overzealous defense of the man. The captain does not seem to believe Domenico, but because he is tired of being part of an army that sees no action, goes along with it. Domenico means to leave Amerigi while taking his army to Fidena, but Felicia tells him she will not go with him. To her surprise, Domenico breaks down and confesses that he has loved her since he saw her and that he wants her for a wife. He thought that if he kept her around long enough by force, she would come to love him in return, as all women do. There was never another woman. He was going to pass her off as the Duke of Savoy's illegitimate daughter, knowing the man would not protest his lie, in order to give Felicia ties to the nobility. He showed her pictures of potential brides to make her jealous, but Felicia never gave him the reaction he desired. Felicia finally tells Domenico she loves him, they return with the army and take back the city of Fidena, and then they wed. The epilogue mirrors the prologue. Felicia is about to give birth to Domenico's heir, and his reign of terror will continue. All right, so now that we've talked about literally everything that happens in this book, uh, <laughs> now we can chat about it. So gothic heroines are often heavily criticized for being spineless or too stupid to live, and I can see people say that Felicia is more of a passive heroine. What do you think of this critique and how Felicia's decisions compare to other main characters in gothics? I focused more on the critique of Too Stupid to Live because it enraged me so much. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, first off, she's 18 or 19. Uh, she doesn't even know her own age because her brother and sister-in-law don't tell her anything about herself or like the family. And they restrict her socializing, even with other servants. Like, the other servants learn fairly quickly. Extending kindness to Felicia will get them in trouble. So we have this very mm -hmm. sheltered girl thrust into the political world with no experience or knowledge of that world. So how would you expect someone like this to react? She watches. Yeah. She observes. We get all the statecraft as she listens in rooms or listens to other people. And she does start to pick up on it near the end. Uh, Domenico is asking her questions near the end of the book, and she just kind of gets to the heart of what he's asking. So she says, I know, it does not matter to you whether the Duke is mad or sane, so long as you get what you want from him. He looked at me sharply. You are growing politic. Soon I shall have to consider the things I say to you before I speak aloud. 
And then another thing that annoys me about this critique is, to me, Teresa Dennis is pulling from, like, the Anne Radcliffe gothic tradition. So Anne Radcliffe, um, she's very popular in, like, the 1780s. She really popularized the gothic tradition and the genre and the convention of the virtuous heroine and the overbearing aristocrat who preys on her and then the man she actually ends up marrying at the end of the book. So I guess I see this influence with the setting in like historical Italy, but also I feel like Dennis is asking the question, what if the heroine succumbed to the aristocrat? Yeah, I think too stupid to live categorically. D- don't say it. It's it's a bad <laughs> critique. It's a lazy critique. If if a heroine is really so so is making such incomprehensible decisions, like just call the book bad. Like don't call the character stupid. Like I think that's the the line that I have. I hate I hate that phrase. I do like Beth's point about the the relationship with the gothic and like falling in love with the aristocrat instead of the sort of maybe nobler right like the um, virtuous like man the virtuous yeah. brother. Because I did like that relationship between Sandro and um, Domenico. Like I kind of. We'll talk about this later and like how, what Sandra's like plot ends up being, but the idea that like Domenico, like the the sort of heir who is like not doing things right or is like ma- has machinations or is trying to get away with things, like in if this was a regency, if this was a ballroom set book, that guy would get a comeuppance. He would look like a fool at the end of the book, but it's like Domenico is not gonna ever look like a fool. Like he's always gonna be in charge. So Felicia mm-hmm. doesn't. There's no route for her to actually have that like that that direction so it's like she kind of has to she's actually smarter by saying like i'm gonna i'm gonna go with the way the wind blows and the power because that's that's a decision that's keeping her alive she's not dying like sort of famously she 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 is avoiding the violence from domenico directly i know we're always talking about people not thinking about how in first person gothics we're still dealing with like the main character's lack of information. But the interesting thing about the Silver Devil is that even though Felicia is ignorant of court, she's able to tell right away that these people mean her harm, which, like, because she's not stupid. Like, it's it's just, like, she... What does she know about this world? Like, what does she know about these people? And what can she do, though, to retaliate? She can't leave. As we find out later, Domenico would punish her. And now that she's lived as a man's mistress, she wouldn't be welcomed back at the Eagle, which is a life that was already almost unbearable for her when she was still seen as virtuous. So, like, what are the choices that people think that Felicia has to make her be smart? Like, they're, she's really kind of, like, backed into a corner here. And I liked that conversation so much about like what you were saying, Beth, about like the heroine succumbing. Like, I think that's what makes the Silver Devil so unique is that the fact that we fully buy into Felicia's innocence until she gets what she wants, which is Domenico's love. So this is kind of the point where we have to ask, what is it to want Domenico's love? What do you have to ignore and endure for the HEA? And that makes it like such a spooky and kind of depressing, like, (laughs) but also very like, very like metal ending (laughs) i feel like she's good at surviving too like when Uh you were talking about um that she's good at kind of like seeing who might be hopeful to her or like what can she get from that person i think she's always kind of done that in her life like what can i do Mm -hmm. to survive the situation right and you're like she doesn't know a lot about the court but she's also more successful at the court than other players like piero and madalena because she, her priority is survival rather than power, mm-hmm. um, and I think that comes from her background with her with Antonio and Celia, 
that it's like that is a frankly like a more tenuous situation like for her like livelihood like if she gets kicked out of that house where is she gonna go like if she gets kicked if when the implication in the court is when Domenico's down with her like she'll go to a nunnery or be passed off and she'll have this like emotional anguish but there'll be like a place for her and so it's like as bad as the like abuses and violence of Domenico's court are it it is like a she she acknowledges it's like a higher a higher world for her and she has more more places to fall than um Antonio and Celia and I don't think Madalena and Piero are like understand that as, as like a power that she has um mm-hmm. that ultimately like leads to her like quote unquote like success at the court but like, I think it's also one of the things that makes her like attractive to Domenico like he he likes that aspect of her like he he first becomes attracted to her in the inn I think that's important like why why he's so drawn to her it was so crass, but like he's surfeit of brood mares. So now he wants to mount the unicorn. Yeah, Piero, <laughs> saying that. <laughs> That's how people talk. Yeah, <laughs> to strangers. <laughs> he just came right out the gate with that too. That was like I think like the first time we meet him. Also, that's one of those things. Like you, when you're first reading it, you're like, oh, this is Domenico's like. Like, this is what Domenico's like. And you're like, once you learn about Piero and Domenico's relationship, you're like, oh, Piero is saying that out of jealousy. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's discarded me. He will discard you as well. Mm-hmm. And so rather than this, like, surface level, like, this is just the way Domenico is with everyone, it's like you can kind of read it as like, oh, Piero has to tell that to himself to justify his own disposal. And that's one of those things that changes once you have all the information post-revelations that Felicia has. Right. And it's also, too, like, so Piero seems like he's the only one. And we're going to talk about Piero a lot uh, today because Piero's <laughs> the best character. But, like, Piero, he has this, like, 13-year-long relationship with Domenico. And so what uh, Felicia is being told about Domenico's other mistresses is that they will last, like, hours. Like, even his relationship with Madalena, like, it wasn't, like, a sustained relationship. Like, he mm-hmm. would, like, have an affair with her and she would do something else. Like, right. it wasn't, like... So the one big relationship in his life outside of Felicia was only Piero. So it does make sense, even though he does have all these mistresses and like he he does like quickly lose interest and discard people. It does make sense that like Piero is way more threatened by Felicia than he would be anyone else because there was never there was never anyone who came close to him until until this point. The Silver Devil stands out amongst bodice rippers for the really unique way that violence is enacted. In this case, it's punishment by proxy. So there are two really gruesome instances that stand out. The young courtier who Domenico suspects as being Felicia's lover, who is put to the rack, and the seven people Domenico sentences to hang after Felicia's escape attempt. I don't want to like derail the conversation, but I think... The Silver Devil is like a pretty good exploration of like proximity to violence because of Felicia's position. So as I was reading this, I'm like, I think a lot of people now would, might associate this with like mafia romance. I kind of have like, I don't like love mafia romance. I feel like sometimes authors will stop short of like truly examining the violent characters that they have created. Um, mm-hmm. Like Ter- Teresa Dennis clearly has no no qualms that way but i kind of read mafia romances as like kind of a spiritual successor to gothics in that way that proximity to violence where you have this like violent man at the head of a violent organization and most authors construct their worlds as like very patriarchal 
So arranged marriages mm-hmm. are a feature, and most women in these stories have to grapple with their complicity. And honestly, the standard is embracing the darkness at the end of the book. Like, they kind of are okay with, like, I was born in the darkness, raised in the darkness. I'm going to be, like, mm-hmm. part of this violent world. So, yeah, I don't know. That was just <laughs> something I thought about when I was reading this book. It's so funny because, like, the way that, you know, because of – we talk about reputations all the time. Like, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Silver Devil has this reputation. But, like, it is kind of like the same thing you have have happen in some mafia romances where, like – I think it's a Daniel Laurie book, and I know she sucks, right? Like she sucks, but like she's the, like a Trump supporter or something. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read this book, but it this this scene became like a meme, a meme. Uh, it became a thing on TikTok where it's like right. he like someone touched his girl, and then he blew right. up a gas station. Um, yeah, they weren't like, even dating yet. I think he like oh my goodness, like <laughs> tries to grab her butt, and he go and he's uh-huh. like, "What's wrong?" And then she tells him. He goes inside, and he sets the gas station on fire. And everyone's like, "Oh my goodness, he set the gas station on fire for her." <laughs> Setting the guys- gas station on fire not that hard. Like, <laughs> famously flammable. Step it up. <laughs> I'm just saying. Did you put a man to the rack? Right. Right. <laughs> People do. I think gas stations catch on fire accidentally all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess like just kind of like taking it back to like the punishment by proxy. I think I think Dennis is cutting off any like. Well, why doesn't she just leave criticisms off at the knees? So there's a lot more at stake than Felicia's virtue or her pride. There's like these actual human casualties. The Domenico lays at her feet for her like quote unquote bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So I keep thinking of that moment where Domenico sentences all of those people who helped her escape to death. And then Felicia thinks that the memory of the state will be unbearable if she goes on living. Like, she's just like, the worst thing that could happen to me is me knowing that this happened. So it's it's just kind of like this other, like, it's not just Felicia's life. It's not just like her choices have this like very obvious cause and effect because of the way that he chooses to keep her in line. But she does go on living. And I think thematically like gothic romance, like as you were talking about, Beth, it it's not, it's like, what if I wasn't dragged into darkness? What if I was born there? So if Felicia is to love Domenico, to truly love him and to stay with him of her own volition, she's staying with a man that did these things. It's a sort of tacit endorsement that brings her close to his level because most of the people he killed were entirely innocent or minimally involved in the escape there's no plausible deniability for felicia she knows domenico is violent and erratic and evil but in the end she still chooses to marry him i think the sort of arc of the violence um again like going back to Stormfire, i struggled to read this book like it was hard to read there were scenes that were hard to read it was not to the level of like anguish for me as Stormfire, and i think part of that goes to I don't think Dennis is super interested, at least in this book, in, like, the cycles of abuse. Like, that's not really the arc of the violence that she's dealing with. It's more like the descent into violence. Like, mm. it's it, it, Domenico's constantly, like, upping what he's willing to do. Mm. Um, but in Stormfire, there's this, like, cycle of, like, abuse of Catherine and then, like, um, emotional connection and then a revelation and then more abuse of Catherine. And mm. so it gets to that, like, sort of, like, domestic violence sort of, like how do we move on? How do we, how, how can we ever be together? Because this is how our relationship is defined. Felicia's never really worried that she's going to die at Domenico's hand. It's like, what is he going to do to other people? And so again, it's that these things, these books that are sort of like put together because of their extreme violence 
just deal with so such different things. And it's like, yeah, violence like romance has lots of different ways that it manifests in relationships. Um, and it's it's the reading experience is very different. And also the, the narrative structure of how the violence intersects with the romance is very different. Like having the reveal that Domenico has loved her the whole time. That's a very gothic thing. Like the thing, like the mm-hmm. question of like, am I bad for loving him like is this reciprocated like is this which right. is not even something that she really even thinks she doesn't think it's possible mm-hmm. um right. it and i think kind of like having it works so well as a gothic but it does i can see why you wouldn't experience like that emotional anguish because like you don't have uh you don't have like that emotional connection between felicia and domenico because you have mm-hmm. to keep up the mystery What are Domenico's true feelings about Felicia? What is Domenico Mm -hmm. going to do? Like, in order for the story to work, Domenico has to be, like, very erratic and impenetrable. Like, Mm -hmm. if it was so obvious that he was going to marry her and that he loved her the whole time, Mm -hmm. I feel like it would feel maybe a little bit goofy. Um, Mm -hmm. But it does – but because of that, it just, like, functions so much differently. So it's kind of like – yeah, I see sometimes, like, these books on lists together of, like, similar books. And I'm like, that's not – they're not. (laughs) Not really. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, Sean and Catherine both have a moment in Stormfire where they're like, oh, no, I love this person. Mm -hmm. Um, And Felicia kind of has that, but she doesn't really feel – I didn't get the sense that she was – upset about loving Domenico it was just like of course of, of course that's what happens when you're with Domenico is that you become fascinated by him you become interested in him and it's like this is the oh no is more like I I've set myself up for pain not mm-hmm. I'm surprised by my own feelings yeah um, so yeah it's just the arc is totally different um it's it's wild yeah it's I think it's like the that first night that they are together like she She's like, oh, it would be so easy to love him. I can't let this happen. So she's kind of like already braced for it. It's not a surprise for her. And I was surprised too because I remember this line because I love this line. But I was so, but it's um, it's when Felicia realizes that she's in love with Domenico. Um, he is uh, and he's going through like the potentials of uh, the pictures of his future brides, and he uh, like summons her over, and then she thinks. He held his hand out to me without speaking, and it was then, as I went to him like a falcon flying to his fist, I realized I loved him. And that was like maybe a couple chapters into the book. That was not very far. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of like surprised the second time around that it's so early. Uh, There was never – the tension isn't really so much about like how she feels about Domenico. It's how – uh, how Domenico feels about her is a lot more mm-hmm. of the tension. I was honestly surprised when she was like, I think I love this guy. I was like, him? <laughs> <laughs> like, I understand why you would be fascinated by someone, like, like by mm-hmm. him. But I, yeah, it is very early on that she's like, yeah, I love him. But I guess I kind of just chalked it up to like, this is literally the first person she's ever like been with. And like, he mm-hmm. is kind of interested in her. I could see why she might feel that early on and going from a place where like Antonio and Zilia were saying her entire life like nobody is interested in you mm-hmm. we're only keeping track of you because like it would cost us money to get rid of you yeah mm-hmm. um yeah I think when pe- if people talk about the like abuse and violence in this book and focus on Domenico and it's like you're not acknowledging that's like Felicia's coming from an abusive like starting place yeah. mm-hmm. that she that she has less power in it's like yeah the at least at court she has like some power over Domenico even if she's like in the process of learning it as we're reading her her plot 
Mm-hmm. Um, she has no power at Antonio's Inn. Like she she has no ability to fight back or um, to gain anything. So, so yeah, like when she when she moves up, even if she has no knowledge of like what exactly is going on politically, she knows that she has some some stakes and some power at her disposal, and that 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 power seems to be part of the attraction um, that the proximity that to him gives her. Speaking of proximity, I want to talk about Piero, Domenico's childhood friend who loved him and one of the main antagonists of the book. So I think he's the most compelling character in the entire story. So we're going to talk about his death a little bit later. But first, what do you think of his role as Felicia's tormentor and his betrayal of Domenico? All I put is I just like, I honestly could read a story where like Domenico and Piero live out their story together. Like their love story. <laughs> like maybe there's a version of like the Silver Devil where it's like Piero and Domenico's book. Um, yeah. That, that, was, that was what I had. Like a prequel. Yeah. <laughs> Even just like an alternate version. I feel like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, uh, he was my favorite character. I was really interested in him and his motivations more than Domenico. I think probably because he's like, just like there's so much mystery to Domenico and like what is he doing in the politics. Like Piero is like constantly telling us like why he's doing things and it's because he's obsessed <laughs> with Domenico. And it's like, okay, like I'm, I'm on board with that. Like he's in love with Domenico and all the violence and all the power and he has the power to externalize these thoughts. So like Felicia is in this like, quandary where she like feels like she can't say anything to Domenico. Piero is like talking a lot, which I liked. And so I feel like we also get a lot of understanding of like why Felicia is falling in love with Domenico through Piero. It's like when Beth was saying that she was surprised of like when Felicia says like, I think I'm in love with Domenico. And you're like, okay, like why? <laughs> I think the answer not doesn't come from Felicia being able to articulate it. I think it comes from Piero's sort of obsession with him. So we're like watching someone else fall in love with him. I also, like, I feel like, again, if this was, like, a more standard genre fiction setup, it's, like, I would be eagerly anticipating Piero's book, but R.I.P., he dies. I Um, I just want him to, like, (laughs) like, if it was slightly less violent and he didn't die, I would be like, oh, I want his sequel so bad, but he does get eaten by dogs. Yes. Oh, my God. The way you just said he he does get eaten by dogs. (laughs) It's like, bummer. (laughs) No, each, um, a, no H-E-A for our boy Piero. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, of course. So Piero is my favorite character. And it's kind of astounding to me that Dennis can make me have sympathy for such a little worm of a man. So Piero is the one who is constantly telling Felicia that her days are numbered and that Domenico is only interested in her because she's new. So he tells her, quote, he is a sort of child in that he wants nothing so much as the thing that is withheld. And once he has it, he breaks it like as not or tosses it away unvalued. And this is something that he brings up repeatedly. Like every time Felicia is like doing something, he pops up out of a corner. He whispers something a little nasty in her ear. He's like, Domenico's going to get tired of you. I heard he's looking for wives. Better wait until you're my mistress. So there's this really weird situation where Piero is rooting for Felicia's downfall for two reasons. Like he's jealous of her. He's jealous of the way that she has Domenico's affection, but he also wants Felicia. He wants her to be his mistress afterwards. And this is something that like eventually makes Domenico mad. He's like, I can see you panting after Felicia. Like, don't think I don't see that. Just like thinking about why Piero wants Felicia that way. Like, it's just, is it, is it because it's something, because Felicia is a person that Domenico loves? And so, like, 
once he has Felicia, he's that much closer to Domenico. Like, uh, is that is that what it is? Like this, I'm just I'm just so his motivations are a little complex, even though he's always talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the song. It feels like the song "Girl Crush," where it's like the woman singer is singing to the woman. And it's like, I want you because you smell like him. And it's like, uh, what is happening here? Like, this is just very, <laughs> it's like, he doesn't have like the, the gay language to explain why he wants Felicia because of her proximity to Domenico. Also, I just feel like I always picture Piero like leaning up against like a door jam. Like right. he's yeah. always just like, leaning. hi, <laughs> like, like I have something to say. <laughs> I have something to like make you doubt everything that you know up until this point. Right. Um, He's fun. I don't want to be like simplistic, but I feel like that quote you read, Charles, where Piero's like, he's kind of a child. He only wants something that's like withheld. I'm like, is that why he loves Felicia? Like, she's like, won't break. Like, he's like trying to make her jealous. And she's like, yeah, that's a nice picture of a potential bride. I, I mean, there, there, that is kind of a question, right? Because uh, the only thing we know about Domenico's feelings for Felicia comes at the end where he's like, I've always loved you. Mm -hmm. I loved you since I saw you. But it's like, what did he see? Like, what was that conversation like? So if you'll remember, he sees her in the window. Felicia is like, oh, no, I should not have looked at this man, which is correct. The first <laughs> She's very correct. You should not have looked at him. He comes for her later and she doesn't know who he is. And he kind of like corners her in the tap room. And the conversation that they have there is very simple and yeah. straightforward. It's basically he's just like, are you Antonio's lover? And she's like, no, we're kin. And then he calls her little crow. And then he kind of like goes to move to touch her. And she's like kind of like jerking away from him. I don't think that just because Domenico is Domenico's a rapist. Domenico and his friends are rapists. These are things that like it makes it kind of clear that they do have done and and do before. So I don't think it's like necessarily Felicia resisted in that moment and that's why he wants her. I it's it's just it's kind of like a big fog and I think you can like you can say many different things to it. Like maybe she is really different. Maybe he does really love her or maybe it's because she, I mean, she doesn't tell him she loves him until the very, very end. And that's what he wanted so badly. Yeah. Uh, so that is the thing withheld, right? That's like, he has her love. Like, what are we going to, what's going to happen now? How does their reign of terror continue? Back to Piero again. So the standout scene of the book for me is Piero's death. Uh, so even though we are told explicitly that it's coming and we've seen Domenico kill and torture other people by this point, it still manages to be very shocking. Uh, why do you think that is? I think why it's so shocking um, is because it does end up to be like very violent. And like Emma said, some dogs like rip them apart um but also i think and this is so amazing that dennis does this where it's like i feel like your dread about something that's about to happen makes the thing worse and so she kind of does mm -hmm. that to the reader where she's like domenico's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do this to piero so the whole time you're like is he gonna follow through like when is it gonna happen how is it gonna happen so like yeah i feel like the whole time you're you're kind of like all tensed up inside and then when it yeah. actually, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. No, I was just saying when it actually happens, like it's so much worse than you actually imagined. Yeah, a lot of plot happens between Felicia discovering Piero's cipher and his eventual punishment. So 
I think like the reader goes on a similar journey as Piero. So like first we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. We've already witnessed Domenico's cruelty. So we're bracing ourselves for something like almost unendurable. Then when it doesn't come, we let our guard down and we start to think of other matters. So like when he first lost the note, Piero was really jumpy and quiet, like way more cautious than he normally is. And then with time, he like he resumes tormenting Felicia and he's like lulled into this sense of security by Domenico's renewed interest in him. Then the hunting scene occurs. So that moment when Piero realizes he's been cornered is like really devastating because he's finally has nowhere to go. He has no more courtly lies at his disposal. And he spews all of this pent up vitriol at Domenico, like upbraiding him for not loving him properly, for not seeing how good of a friend he could be, for ensorceling him for 13 years of his life. So when Domenico yells back at him, he has one of his fits where he like almost falls unconscious and Piero catches him and they are kind of like locked in this near embrace. And then when Domenico comes to, he immediately orders Piero's death. Uh, So this detail to me reveals that there was a little bit of truth to what Piero was saying. So like while they're fighting, Piero says Domenico made himself my food, then stinted me. I tried to rule him and so I did for a little. Then he grew older and too proud to bear with me. And then Domenico responds, Should the son of a duke be ruled by his lackey? So I think there was true affection between them, but now Domenico is hardened and embarrassed by it. Yeah, I thought about this with the switch from like embarrassment from like a place of affection. Like it seems like this this was this is like the longest relationship that Domenico had of like whatever the relationship was. Like Piero has stuck around. But like that switch with like that laying on top of um, like the power plays in court with the queer relationship, because both participants of like Piero and Domenico, and I think Piero references this when um, or Domenico references it when he said like, should a duke be ruled by his lackey? Piero has the potential to have power in court. Felicia, as a woman, can only secure power and safety through Domenico. But Piero can sort of wrest some from himself for himself. And so before Domenico is actually like an adult and a duke, has the chance to have power over him, not just affectionately, but politically. Felicia can't ever really hope for the latter. But that means that her relationship with Domenico has the staying power because he gets to be sort of singular in his his duke. And this is like ironic because this is the one thing that Piero is telling her she doesn't have. She does not have lasting power. She is not going to stick around. And he's like projecting his reality onto their relationship. Between Piero and Domenico, one of them has to be destroyed because their power plays are always going to exist in like a zero-sum game of like this this patriarchal power that exists in the court where Piero, even if they're in a, if he's in a relationship with Domenico, can turn coat and go look to, for another duke to have um, like an allyship with. They're just always going to be these power players. They can't be compatible in this this way in the system that is built around them. And that's like the thing that I guess Piero doesn't understand about Felicia's relationship. I guess he's he reads her as passive and less skilled at dealing with Domenico's power, but actually her passivity and like lack of political power makes her more powerful in her relationship with Domenico than Piero was. So the two main queer characters in the story, Domenico and Piero, are both pretty horrible. Uh, So we spoke about this in our Gay Week episode, the idea of having queer characters be lecherous or villainous kind of automatically slots them into, like, bad queer representation criticism. But the Silver Devil seems to be so matter-of-fact, almost unconcerned about anyone's sexuality, which I think is kind of a good counter to that criticism. 
I also kind of see Domenico as being kind of like interview with a vampire's Lestat, like an obsessive, abusive, bisexual nightmare who is compelling because of how horrible he is. Uh, would you agree with me here? I put, of course, four times, but you have to read that in Lestat's <laughs> voice. <laughs> it's, and you also have to splice, as long as you're coming home to me. <laughs> of, of, course, course. of course, of course. Of course. Of course. Oh, I, would... I did picture... Lestat basically yes. the whole time. Like, I, I was like, this is Lestat, all the descriptions. Right? <laughs> yeah, like I need like a fan edit of the Silver Devil of just the uh, interview of the vampire. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the the bad bad queer representation, but it, it's I, I one thing I like as far as queer representation goes that I think actually was good in this book. Not that we need that all the time. Is I liked that the the comments about the sexuality that were sort of derisive were limited to like the lower classes. There was like or like Domenico sort of suspect when he's introduced as like, oh, he sleeps. He's he only wanted to join the army because he wanted to sleep with the pretty soldiers. And then after that, we sort of moved to the court. It's like nobody would say anything about Domenico's sexuality in court because he's the duke. Like. <laughs> They get to do whatever they want. Um, like, it, it's like, yeah, like we we talk about like pe- I think people conflate or like collapse the way that queer relationships worked in history. They're like, oh, we do it right now. And like we're accepting of gay people now. But like back then it was it was like this and you, you would have been punished in this one specific way that is like very based on like Victorian notions of sodomy. And it's like, yeah, like an Italian duke during the Renaissance can sleep with whoever he wants and nobody in court is going to think that he is is gonna be upset with it upset with him or like try to wrest power from him because of that right. reason they're trying to wrest power from him for political reasons like they're just totally mm-hmm. separate so i liked the matter of factness i think that's actually an example of like interesting and good queer representation that it's more complicated than the projection of like victorian mores onto historical romance which i think happens more often than it ought to yeah, I think just kind of like the idea of like representation entirely. Like I, I we talked about this a, a lot in the Gaywick episode, but it's basically because there are some people who write gay characters in a way that's just like really derisive and derogatory. Like the everything else has to be like laid out and explained and 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 qualified in a way that makes it very clear that like this is not being endorsed. And and I think that's kind of uh, the the point like uh, that queer people are getting to right now is where we're like we cannot keep having this conversation like we cannot keep like we cannot keep like holding our media to like this weird standard like nobody's ever like hey that heterosexual relationship seemed a bit off well actually no that's not true all of romance fans do that for every single <laughs> right everything has to be Never mind. a healthy a healthy portrayal of a relationship you can't ever ever do anything wrong yeah and i think that like i think giving like the heft like the big emotional heft of the story to domenico and piero like is kind of what and making that really interesting is if we were going to do good versus bad like making the really interesting like really in a book where every single person is bad be between the two queer characters like yeah that's pretty cool um piero's not getting a book unfortunately yeah he's maybe this maybe it'll inspire me to write fan fiction where he gets away Um, (laughs) maybe he like goes torments another part of italy um i just I just I want him to have a happily ever after because I think he deserves it, even though he's terrible. 
He's never done anything good. It's just like he's right. just <laughs> there's nothing like we don't witness him do anything good. No, we never witness. There's him no say redeeming qualities. Nice. There's literally no. And then even the way that he's described, because like, um, so when they're marching through the city at the beginning, Felicia notices that like everybody has white hair. Like they all dye their hair to match Domenico because that's like the fashion at court. But like the only specific person that gets a call out for doing that is Piero. Like no other character (laughs) is just like, oh, this like Domenico follower. Like it's only Piero. Like there's never anything flattering that we're giving, but it's just like, that's that's my baby. (laughs) Uh, Just on the topic of Domenico being a bisexual nightmare, I want to point out my favorite part of Domenico's personality that happens in a very harrowing scene, um, just in case someone doesn't read the book because um, they, which fair if you don't want to, but my favorite Domenico part is when uh, Felicia is attempting not to have sex with him because she thinks they're brother and sister. And it's like very fraud. It's like one of the moments where you really think like, oh, he might like be very violent towards her. But then he, he sort of, he, he couches it and he's like, oh, you're sick. You're on your period. I, I know how I know women get sick on their periods. Like, of course, of course, we don't have to have sex right now. And you're like, oh, this is kind of she, she thinks she's gotten away with something. And then later when he's revealing his torture of Bernardo, um, he says, it's like, I know how periods work. Like, you've been on your period for like a week. <laughs> and it's like, again, in this moment of like total fraughtness where it's like this man is on the rack and Domenico like has to make sure that. It's like, yeah, I've had sex with people before. I know how periods work. <laughs> and it just, it sent me. I was like, oh, yeah, he is a nightmare. <laughs> I'm a cool duke. I know what periods are like. <laughs> right. Both, like, the, that he's also, like, I, Felicia, that maybe is one of her more naive moments. It's like, you think this is going to stop him from having sex with you? Like, you're, you're yeah. just, you're, you're not. What about you're, what? You're not stupid, like but like almost be into that. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that would be more in character if he would be like right on. Like that's right. That's kind of his thing, right? Uh, which is another point for Domenico. Point for right. non-canon Domenico, I guess, because mm-hmm. Domenico I made up in my mind because Domenico in the book was just like, oh, okay. So, so much time in the book is dedicated to Piero's betrayal, but it's not until the third act that we find out that the biggest betrayal is by Sandro, Domenico's half brother with aspirations for ruling. So. Did you see this coming, and was he effective as a last-minute villain? I think so, because, I, again, I was rooting for Piero to be saved the whole time. I was hoping that, like, he would get away or something, because he's just always standing in doorways being gay. But I think I expected Ippolito, because there's a comment early in the book where I think the priest tells Felicia, like, you can only trust Ippolito. And I was like, that's a little on the nose. I was like, maybe he's the person who will be, betra- like, betraying um, Domenico or something. And Felicia takes that to heart, and Ippolito actually is one of the only, like, good people in the book. And then I think Sandro has sort of this reaction to Piero's cipher that I think could have been a hint that he would be more important later for the overall intrigue. But so many, so much is happening with that cipher plot. I don't think I suspected Sandro specifically. But really, everyone in the book is so bad. Like, any, you, really, you really do feel this, like, power vacuum. It's like anyone, if they find a chance to take over, they would. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. – it wasn't a total surprise, but I did, wasn't, like, waiting for Sandro to turn coat. Yeah. I didn't anticipate Sandro's betrayal, but, like, it didn't surprise me. Like you said, Emma, these are all kind of, like, terrible people. So – and I thought it was effective. Like, I didn't – just because I didn't, like, anticipate it, I wasn't, like, surprised that the illegitimate older brother would, like, try and wrest power from his younger brother. 
I think there's a version of this book where Domenico contrives to preemptively kill Sandro to prevent this from happening. I feel like that would be in character for him. But then we wouldn't have a third act, so obviously that's why that didn't happen. And then I think a lot of this book is about lineage and, like, who is legitimate. Domenico legitimizes Felicia by concocting a story that she's the illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Savoy. He only needs her to have this connection to the aristocracy, kind of to satisfy his great uncle so they can get married. Because everyone at court is a villain, save for, like, Ippolito and Father Vincenzo, it's very easy to divide characters into, like, okay, these are Domenico's allies, these are Domenico's foes, instead of, like, take stock of their character. Which is how I think Dennis is able to surprise you with Sandro's betrayal, even though it's partially telegraphed. So Sandro is supposedly a charming man and is much better liked than Domenico, uh, at least by the people. I don't know if it is, like, at court. But we see him commit similar atrocities, namely the rape of an unwilling Madalena and a married innkeeper that takes his fancy. So when Felicia starts to fret about what will happen to Piero when it's discovered that he's a spy, Sandro tells her, Stay a little longer at court, lady, and your tender conscience will cease to prick you. In a week or two, a month, a man's life will be nothing to you if it stands in the way of your affairs. Why should you be so squeamish? The man is as good as dead. So he's like literally telling her, like, you're going to, when people get in your way, you're not going to care if they die. And it's hard to think of like someone feeling that way about Domenico without it being like, because, or at least it was hard to feel that Sandro felt that way about Domenico because he seemed so easygoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this speech, plus his like prior relationship with Gratiana, like he, she was mm-hmm. his mistress uh, and she was also banished from court. So there's like kind of like this like bad blood there that Domenico wasn't really paying attention to because Domenico only really pays attention to Domenico. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I was definitely surprised by it, even though, you know, Piero's dead. We've got this much of the book left. Like, something's got to happen. Right. (laughs) I like the comment about, like, everyone at court being a villain. Because I think it's, like, I think for Dennis, like, you just, you cannot exist in this world and not be a villain. Like, it is a corrupt system that they're in. And especially those chapters at the beginning and the end where they're talking, like, Felicia talks about how hard it is to live in the city. Like, how smelly it is, how, like, hard it is to make ends meet. It's like the kingdom is not thriving. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the thing, the, the all the the splendor of court comes at an expense that we see at the beginning of the book. And so it's like if you're in this court, you, you are you're taking advantage of the world at large. And so you are a villain, whether you're a person who is raping women that you want to rape or if you're killing people who are getting in your way. Like th- mm-hmm. those character traits are are manifestations of the villainy that takes place at the court. It reminds me a lot of the, like, Roger Corman horror films where Vincent Price plays, like, a duke or something. Mm-hmm. Like, the uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, like, the 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 Mask of the Rue Morgue. And is that what it's called? The Mask, Mask of the Red the Death. Red, Mask of the Red Death. Um, in the Fall of the House of Usher, where, with Vincent Price, where it's like, Vincent Price would be, I think he could be uh, Domenico or Sandro, and, the, <laughs> and, like, a young woman comes, and it's like, He's very compelling and like all the people are bad and you're like you're disgusted with his violence. But then it's also like what choice do you have? He's the devil like manifest um, and mm. you're going to have like great, great Roger Corman costumes and stuff. I feel like I, I would watch a Roger Corman adaptation of this book. That would be great. <laughs> um, so there's the incest fake out when Madalena lies to Felicia about her being related to Domenico. But there's reference to real incest later between the Duke of Forenza and his sister, Domenico's stepmother. 
Beth, you mentioned before that there's a reason that there are so many incest plot lines in gothic literature. I was hoping we could talk about that here. Okay, so I think it's kind of important to note that at the heart of the gothic is an examination of power and like a transgression of boundaries. So this kind of towing or crossing the line fascinates us. Authors can explore why those lines are there in the first place and where a specific culture draws the line. Quote, the gothic narratives give shape to culturally specific anxieties and tabooed desires, and that those anxieties and desires will always have to do with power and prohibition. What is forbidden to whom based on their subject positions within a particular social context. And so I kind of see this exploration of power at the heart of the silver devil. Now, specifically about incest, we can trace its use to the very first Gothic, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, published in 1764. So Manfred, whose only son Conrad, the Prince of Otranto, dies. Manfred obsesses over replacing his heir and decides to marry his son's fiancée, Isabella. That might not seem like incest, but according to Roman Catholic law, it was. And beyond that, Isabella views her mother-in-law as her mother. And the friar warns Manfred not to pursue the incestuous designs on thy contracted daughter. And all the like supernatural elements in the book are kind of like aimed at Manfred and like side with Isabella. So I think what's interesting about incest is it seems like a hard and fast line, but it has changed over time. Like, do we consider Fanny's and Edmund's relationship from Mansfield Park to be incestuous? Like, they're cousins. And I think most of us are like, well, that was 1814 and they didn't have genetic testing yet and it wasn't like a social thing yet that you like didn't marry your cousin, which is true. And then there's this episode of New Amsterdam, which is like this run-of-the-mill medical show. But I, they had this like storyline on that I thought was kind of interesting, where a couple comes to see this psychiatrist, Dr. Fromm, after having discovered their half-siblings a few days before their wedding. So if I remember correctly, they're both children of sperm donors, and they decide to do like a 23andMe kit for fun before the wedding, and that's when they discover their like, half-siblings. And they've been a couple for at least nine years. Dr. Frum suggests that if they take surgical precautions to prevent having kids, what's really to stop them from being together? I think this thought experiment challenges our cultural boundary by taking out the two obvious reasons why we have it in the first place. Future children and, like, you grew up together as a family. In The Silver Devil, the fake-out between Domenico and Felicia feels I don't know, for me, it feels kind of like a test of Felicia's devotion. Um, after Madalena lies to her, Felicia still finds herself attracted to Domenico. And this is her speaking. To my horror, my new knowledge made no difference to my inward response. When Domenico kissed me, I felt the same excitement, the same languor. I was so deep in iniquity that I could love my own brother as carnally as if he was no kin. And then after that, she kind of forces herself to be rigid and unresponsive. And she is like really disturbed by this knowledge. But I think she's also disturbed that she doesn't like really feel any differently about Domenico. And then, as Chels mentioned earlier, there is a real <laughs> incestuous relationship. And that's between the Duke of Frenza and his sister Isabella. And I guess I kind of see this one as like an additional signifier of his madness. And because there are multiple types of familiar relationships, I think the type employed is showing different power imbalances and functions differently in any plot. And overall, from the British Gothic tradition, I see this anxiety about losing and gaining fortunes and like consolidating family power as a consistent theme, especially like I mentioned before, legitimacy is such a big deal in The Silver Devil, and you can really see 
then is looking into that. Yeah, for like the theme of incest, I was thinking about two different sort of things I think parallel to the book. So like predating gothic novels, I was thinking about like the theme of incest in fairy tales Mm -hmm. and how fairy tales are often like this, like there's like this anxiety about incest and anxiety about children leaving the home, like paralleled. Like um, the two that I thought about with Stormfire were the fairy tale Donkey Skin and Beauty and the Beast. So Donkey Skin is like more directly about incest where the it's similar to the the plot of the gothic novel that Beth talked about where the father's wife dies and he promises her I'll only marry someone who's as beautiful and virginal and like and, and pure as you. The daughter grows up and then like he's he feels like contractually fairy tale obligated to marry the daughter who's the only one as beautiful as her mother and the daughter does not want to. And so she like requests increasingly um, expensive gifts of dresses from her father until she can get away by dressing up as his donkey. And that's why it's donkey skin. But it's about this like this anxiety about children leaving their kingdom, leaving their home, but also the anxiety about the extreme, which is like keeping them in and this incestual incestuous relationship. And then also the incest that's sort of prevalent in the parallel kingdoms to the the kingdom of Cambria, the actual ones, like, I mean, we have like the Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. um, or not the whole, I don't remember what they were in charge of. Hab- they were in Spain and also home, Holy Ro- Roman Empire, but there's like the the nob- nobility and consolidation of power through incest, which was mostly like, I think, uh, uncles and nieces, creates this like consolidation of power that then also is the downfall of the family because of the genetic collapse of the family. So I think that anxiety of like a family unit makes sense here again because Felicia is it doesn't have that family unit with like Antonio and uh, Celia and she even says like it like when she discovers that she's potentially in an incestuous relationship with Domenico she's like it would be like if I was lying with Antonio and so she she connects it to like what her sort of semaculorum of a family unit at the Eagle that never really served that purpose that theme makes sense what's a why um Janice it has sort of so many connections through the plots that she brings up. Yeah. Uh, so what's very interesting to me is that you could have almost entirely the same story if the Duke of Forenza, Emerigi, and Isabella didn't have an incestuous love. Like, it's not difficult to believe that a brother would grieve the death of his sister and harbor a need for vengeance. In fact, I think that's a pretty common historical romance plot. But by making it incestuous, Dennis kind of turns it into this, like, rotten, doomed love uh, I didn't delve into this in the recap for time purposes, but Isabella dies by suicide because she's rejected by Domenico. So I think Dennis is turning Isabella into an even more tragic figure here. So she's like a woman who's desperate for love and affection, no matter how inappropriate it is. Um, and then even then you can kind of like contrast Gratiana and Isabella. So Gratiana, the third wife, uh, was Sandro's lover and Sandro's her stepson. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Gratiana escapes this sort of like tragic characterization by her lack of remorse and her scheming, which I know like stepmother and son, there's no like relationship there. But there's still like a line there. Yeah. It's still crossing a line. Yeah. I think that the character work it does there is I feel like it made me kind of understand Isabella a little bit more because Isabella, uh, She's referenced kind of obliquely throughout the book, and I I didn't really get the significance of her. And then Domenico occasionally has these nightmares, right? Yeah. Um, Which I think is 
probably why Felicia thinks that she hasn't, or Felicia starts to have an affection for him. Like there's like, she sees this like very secret human moment. And he even tells her the first time he has nightmares. He's like, don't tell anybody this. I, I don't want to have to kill you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so she has, she has that like insight into him. And, and I think kind of like the question is like why Domenico feels that way about Isabella. I don't think that really made sense to me, but I feel like Isabella being an important part of the story, like that through line of like grief and anguish over Isabella and then having her brother be like the final boss of the book. I think that kind of like stringed it a, a stringed it together for me a little bit more. Like it made sense why I should be thinking about these characters and thinking about these things. And Isabella's sort of, like, death, I think, makes it clear that, like, Domenico has some well of something, like, that, it, mm-hmm. that he, that there's, he will mourn someone, we, like, whether he will mourn Felicia or not is not clear until the end of the book, but that he has, that's, that's like, available to him, both to the, re- that, and that's clear to the reader and Felicia, that he's not just so cruel and calculating that that's not even an option, but it's, like, who does he provide it to is unclear. Mm-hmm. So we love to talk about setting here, and Dennis in particular has really unique settings that place her books in the throes of violent, megalomaniacal rulers. So The Flesh and the Devil, her second book, is set during a time of upheaval in post-Inquisition Spain, and The Silver Devil is set in what the book cover called Renaissance Italy, uh, but is like a time where there were papal states before the unification of Italy. So I thought we could talk about that here. Also, did I characterize that correctly? Yeah. So the Papal States are one kingdom in like the the landmass of mm-hmm. Italy um, that I think sort of start like in the 900s, 800s, and then continue with different power until the 1800s. So the Papal States, you can think of them as like uh, akin to like the Duchy of Siena or the Kingdom of Naples. So there are all these like little kingdoms with different power players on the mass of Italy like Tuscany is one, and they they are always like moving their lines about. The papal states are interesting, and it comes up in the book because they have sort of two types of power. So like a normally a duke or a prince has like the political power of the land that they occupy, and that's what that's what they have. But the papal states have both like the religious power because the person who's in charge of them is the pope, but also the what's called like temporal power or temporal power of the land, and so that comes up into the plot. Later, but Cam- so Cambria is a is a fictional sort of kingdom or a duchy that is akin to like Siena or Tuscany, and this like this version of Italy comes up in a few different romance novels. I very recently read Shadow Heart by Laura Kinsale, which is very firmly medieval, but has a similar sort of political issue of like the multiple kingdoms of Italy, duchies of Italy, and so the external plot is really focused on who's going to be in charge of this small kingdom. Because Italy as a nation state doesn't exist yet. And also Italian identity is sort of in its nascency, especially in the 1600s when this book is set. That One of the things that develops the identity during the Renaissance, like with Machiavelli's writing, leading up to the Risorgimento or the unification of Italy in 1861, are the sort of persistent political conflicts that come from outside forces. So like the threat of Spanish invasion in this book, that sort of becomes a rhetoric for people to say, like, we should work together and we should be concerned about Spanish invasion or French invasion. So like the invasion of um, Napoleon into Italy in the early 1800s is a big catalyst for Italian identity by the 1860s. But yeah, that's that's Italy. It's hard, it's hard to conceptualize because you think of Italy as like a very old country but it has this sort of dual identity. It's like a very old country and then also a very young country because it wasn't Italy as we know it until the 1860s. 
That was very good. I before we were, <laughs> we were recording this, I was like, I don't know anything about Italy. <laughs> I'm gonna need you guys to step up here for me. Well, um, and this is kind of like not Italy specific, but because um, I've read both of Teresa Dennis's books, and so I was kind of thinking about like how she like continuously like sets her books in places and times where we kind of like bear witness to the removed violence of the Catholic Church, like the like power of the Catholic Church. So we spoke about this in our Taxonomy of Rakes episode, but Felipe, the main character in The Flesh and the Devil, has firsthand knowledge of the violence of the Inquisition. So he tells his love interest, your priests will torture any man or woman in the name of testing their faith, but they will not kill. They are too merciful. They abandon their victims to the secular arm to met up death, but it is the church herself that swallows the lands and goods that come with them. So in The Silver Devil, the archbishop is like this very important figure in Cabria because when he dies, the pope will likely excommunicate the entire state, like damning thousands of souls. So he's the one man that Domenico can't really kill. So Domenico has to outmaneuver him in other ways. And the archbishop is also kind of like he has this like very... He has a lot of power and he also is very clearly like not thinking of Felicia or like thinking of Felicia as like a problem to be solved. Like there's one point where Madalena tells Felicia like, yeah, he's going to help you escape, but like he doesn't care if you go to a nunnery or if you die. Like to him, this matters not. What matters is that you're gone. So it's kind of like this like removed violence from him as well. Yeah, I liked the specificity of the way that like religious sort of trauma and conflict came up in this book. I really like that when that happens in historicals because I feel like, again, not unlike uh, the queer question, um, I feel like there's often this collapse of like people, like we have this assumption that people are like vaguely more religious and so that they care about like things like virginity or going to church or it's like not specific. So like some of my mm-hmm. favorite romance novels, like I'm thinking like Flowers from the Storm, have like very specific manifestations of like how one person's relationship to their religion rather than this like vague 19th century British Protestantism. Um, But I think the way that comes out is that Felicia takes the threat of excommunication really seriously. Um, Like when I reading it as like a 21st century vaguely Protestant American, the threat of excommunication of an entire city seems so clearly strictly a political move. Like, I think I would hear that and be like, that doesn't count. Like, that that's ridiculous. The idea that you can excommunicate an entire city from the church. It's this, like, petty threat of men that seems silly to be anxious about. But Felicia has this, like, terror and anxiety about the souls for the area, which she earnestly believes will not be saved if they're excommunicated. It's really obvious um, that it's earnest, and it's also sympathetic towards Felicia. I think Dennis doesn't really pull any punches sort of winking at this anxiety that Felicia feels about this um, political machination she's been thrust into. Like, how terrifying would that be, like, to think, like, once this archbishop dies, Mm -hmm. we're all fucked. Like, that's just kind of, like, what it seems like. And you can't do anything about it because of Catholicism. That's just the way that it works. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess kind of, like, wrapping up here, uh, I want to talk about how the epilogue and the prologue are the same scene. And they're almost equally sinister, but to me the difference is that Felicia in the prologue seems like she's a victim, while Felicia in the epilogue is more complicit in Domenico's reign of terror. Why do you think Dennis bookended the Silver Devil with these two versions of the same scene? I know, I've been thinking about this since I read the question. I know, I and know. I was like... Okay. <laughs> I, I, I can, I can tell theory. you what I think. Yeah, I have a theory. <laughs> 
Um, so I loved this choice. Um, I think it's hard to convey how sinister the prologue is without reading it in its entirety. It's only like four or five paragraphs. But you're left with this sinking feeling that, oh, this isn't going to end well. Uh, but it's also the happily ever after. So this is Dennis's baby log. And that's what makes it such a genius choice is that it really shows what she was going for here. Like the true slow burn of the book is how you start to look at Felicia differently, where her passivity and victimhood kind of morph into something a bit more difficult to defend. So like nothing has changed in either of these scenarios. The prologue, the epilogue are the same scenes. What changes is how you feel about it. So she kind of like ropes you in there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I read what you wrote and I was like, that that's that seems accurate. Um How did you feel about the fact that I called the silver devil having a baby log? But it is a baby log. <laughs> <laughs> like under the definition of baby log, it is one. Well I'm like, is she only pregnant in that? Or she like has the baby? Anyway. She I think or she, she kind of, I think she has the baby yeah. at the end. Like I think it's a baby log. Um, I think you yeah. can just be pregnant. It's a baby log. But yeah. yeah. What do you think Domenico's like as a father? Maybe it's like a cousin West situation where he like really steps up to the task. <laughs> <laughs> he crushes it. He's amazing. I could see him. He's being like, this is actually what needed to change him. <laughs> oh, I feel like I could see him being so like obsessed about securing his legacy especially if he has like a son first that he'd be like okay this is how you read people like just those are the types of lessons he's giving his kids or it could be like dane and lord of scoundrels where felicia's like now you get a taste of your own medicine like your <laughs> child is super charming everyone's obsessed with them i guess it would be like a reverse dane because dane's a terror and so is his child but it's like oh someone is now more charming than dominico at court and he just has to put up with it and Felicia's like, this is, now you see what we all have been dealing with for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, and because you don't, like, really meet Duke Carlo at any point. Like, you kind of, yeah. you, she, Felicia gets a glimpse of him, but you never, like, and you're not really given that many clues to his personality, except that he's, like, he sleeps around a lot. Like, that's mm -hmm. kind of the only thing you know. So you don't really know, like, how much of Domenico is, like, purely Domenico and how much of that he's getting from Duke Carlo. But, yeah, I feel like... If Domenico has a child, that child is going to be Domenico mm -hmm. to me. Like, I think that's right. just, he's going to be exactly like Domenico, except he has black hair. Oh, yeah, yeah she does have the baby because the baby has black hair. Mm -hmm. That's, she is, she has black hair. Mm -hmm. she, he's not a silver devil. Well, I guess on that note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, do you guys have any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to say about this book? Uh, I'm good. Yeah, it's it's different. It's different that, I mean, for all the comparisons we made throughout the episode, I will say it's unlike anything we've read. Like, it's, I think, our, our comparison. The, we made so many because you have to stretch what you're reaching for to try and comp this book. Yeah, there really isn't any other gothic romance like it. Like, it definitely is in kind of like a league of its own with stakes that are just like entirely different. It doesn't really work as, it doesn't, it's not that similar to like, the other like really big historical romances of the time it's not that similar to the big gothics it's just kind of like Teresa Dennis just kind of did her own thing so yeah it was very fun to talk about this book with you both thank you so much um and thank you so much for listening to reformed rakes if you enjoy this podcast you can find bonus content on our patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes please rate and review us on apple and spotify it helps a lot you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at Reformed Rakes. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.